This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello there and a very happy Monday afternoon to you. Today you'll be heading to Western Australia's northern goldfields where a council is considering building a fence around its town site to stem a so-called invasion of wayward cattle. It follows reports of the cattle damaging gardens while a local council worker was knocked unconscious by one of the local at one of the local sporting fields. Also today, have you heard of the Stacey Lamb train? Well, in its heyday, 10,000 fat lambs were loaded onto trains and they were all from one family farming operation at Querreding. The pride that the family uh, have was the fact that the, not one animal died in transit in, in those 31 years of, of train transport to uh, Rob Jetty's. You'll hear the full story about the Stacey Lamb train from Trevor and his mum, Shirley Stacey, just after half past 12 today. Also, an update on the future of the livestock on board the MV Bahija. We'll get to that shortly. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. A sheep producer in the state's Great Southern has lost dozens of lambs after an outbreak of salmonella on the property last month. Over 50 sheep died and another 30 were affected in the outbreak. Dr Judy Burson is a deep herd field veterinarian. She says it's not that unusual to see a few cases of salmonella every year. I think it's more common than people realise. So for people that don't know, salmonellosis is um, in sheep is an infectious bacterial disease that causes illness and death. It results from proliferation of the salmonella bacteria in the gastrointestinal tract and other organs. But yeah, outbreaks tend to be isolated to single mobs on a property, so we're not expecting this to pose a risk to the wider WA sheep population. But salmonella outbreaks are often facilitated by stress factors, so environmental stress, high stocking densities, low water levels in dams can be stressful as well. And in most mobs of sheep, there will be some animals which are carriers. So that just means that these animals don't show clinical signs of disease. But when they do become stressed, they start to shed that bacteria which then infects other animals around them and then they become sick as well. Some cases this is introduced by wild birds or rodents, but that's pretty uncommon. It's mainly spreads pretty fast when there's sheep running in close proximity together. So confinement feeding and feedlots are good examples of that. So this is contagious amongst sheep. Is it contagious to people? Absolutely. So it is a zoonotic disease. It can be passed from sheep to people and it's probably something that people are not all that aware of. So if you do have any sheep that are having signs of salmonella or really any signs of disease, it's always best to play safe. So wash your hands, maintain good hand hygiene after handling these animals. And if you have PPE available, we recommend that you wear gloves if possible. And and what are the symptoms that farmers should look for if they think that their flock has come down with salmonella? In some cases, sheep are simply found dead. But in other cases with salmonella, sheep will run a high fever, They go off their feed and water, they can become separate from the rest of the mob and they will have diarrhoea, sometimes that does contain blood as well. The other thing that we see is with pregnant ewes that get salmonella, they can abort due to the fever that's associated with the systemic infection. This particular illness, is it common within sheep? Yeah, we see a few cases every year. I think it can fluctuate with seasonal influences and I guess what stress factors are available to sheep at that time. But because of these carrier animals that can be within the mob, 
and as well as infection that can be introduced by wild birds and rodents, it I guess it's more common than we think it is and it can spread quite easily between sheep as well. Say a farmer has a flock and they, they do come down with salmonella, is there a, a treatment to, uh, to help the animal? What should farmers do to try to minimise the impact to their flock? The first thing to do would be to separate your unaffected animals from the group, move them to a clean area so they can spread out a little bit more because the further apart they are, the less likely they would be contracting it from each other and ensure that that mob has got clean water, preferably in a trough to avoid faecal contamination um, and provide them with good quality hay as well. For your animals that are affected, you should contact your private veterinarian for advice on treatment options such as fluids and antibiotics. So they can be treated, it's not once they have it, that's the end for the sheep? And it depends on how severe the individual sheep is and, and when you've found them. You can definitely attempt treatment and Sometimes it is successful, it just sort of depends on the situation that's happening on that property and when you've caught them, when you apply your treatment options. Deep Herd Field veterinarian Dr Judy Burson with Andrew Chounding. And if you think there is salmonella in your flock, you can call the Emergency Animal Disease Hotline. You must know the number by now, 1800 675 888, 1800 675 Triple eight, the emergency animal disease hotline. 10 past 12. Well, the livestock industry regulator, the Federal Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, is still deciding what to do with the livestock that remain on board the MV Bahesia that's been docked at the port of Fremantle for a week. The livestock vessel with 15,000 sheep and cattle on board was ordered to return to Australia last month due to security concerns in the Red Sea. The department says daily reports from the veterinarian on board the vessel continue to indicate there are no significant health or welfare concerns with the livestock that remain on board. Over the weekend, 750 cattle were offloaded and a total of four cattle have since died. Jeff Pearson is the WA Farmers Livestock President. Jeff, are we any closer to a final decision on the future of the livestock on board the MV Bahesia? Yeah, look, it's um, it, it's getting closer. Um, we're still awaiting, obviously, the you know, final decision from the department at the moment. But we have, um, you know, over the weekend or, or late last week, we did offload the numbers to uh, allow the stocking densities to allow the ship to um, continue on its long-haul voyage. So what numbers were taken off and was it a mix of cattle and sheep or what was it? Yeah, we took we didn't take any sheep off. There was no sheep discharge. It was uh, around 750 uh, cattle that were taken off. And where are they now? Uh, they've gone back to their registered establishment in the quarantine where they come from. And we've heard that there was some uh, uh, fatalities, some of the cattle died. Uh, what can you tell us about the numbers and the, the circumstances? Yeah, look, it's it was um, you know it was a, a reasonably efficient uh, discharge. We we did it uh, in the coolness of the, of the night because uh, it was had been hot uh, the day before and the day after. So we decided to to shift them into the cool of the night. Uh, and um, yeah, once they were received into the into the uh, RP or the registered establishment, they um, they all looked to be fine. Uh, and then the next day, we uh, we had uh, up to uh, half a percent mortalities. And the reason for that? We don't know. We think it, we've done it. We've conducted autopsies on them. There was no visual signs or anything like that during the day. Um, so we'll wait the, the autopsy. But we think it's we can, it's been contributed by the transport. Right. So it was after they were offloaded 
So it was sort of between then and, and arriving at the property that Correct. something went wrong. Okay. Yeah. And when, when do you expect those results back, Jeff? Uh, Any time now. So we're hoping to get something by the end of today. Is that a concern, though, for the, the rest of the cattle on this uh, property? No, we, we haven't had any further mortalities. It was only just that one instance. Um, so we're, we're obviously monitoring it closely. Over, we have been monitoring it closely over the weekend. Um, there's been plenty of people, um, department um, and officials here um, looking at the cattle every day. So uh, there's no other visual signs or any any uh, signs of any other sickness there. I mean, everything else has been uh, quite good and the cattle are very relaxed and comfortable. And that sort of number, uh, mortality rate, after they are, are offloaded, what do you make of that? Is that a concern? Um, by shifting that amount of uh, cattle in that, that amount of time, I mean, you, you sort of expect, you know, maybe one or two, but we ended up with four, so... Yeah, it's um, just one of those things. And you said that it was done sort of early hours of the morning when the cattle were offloaded, um, obviously a lot cooler and we have had some hot days, but was that also yeah. to avoid protesters? Uh, not really, no. It was just a decision that the department made. We were ready to go. The ship had berthed. Um, it was um, loading with uh, with fodder and, and, uh, and fuel at the same time, so it was a perfect opportunity while it was alongside to, to remove the cattle um, that t- at that time. And you said earlier you feel like the regulator is close to making a, a decision about the future of the livestock that remain on board the MV Bahasia. What is the most likely scenario? Is it still that voyage back to the Middle East, to the Israeli market? Yep, that's that's exactly where we're, where we're looking at. Now we've uh, relaxed the stocking density, then um, you know, we're hoping the department can come back and, and provide us with a permit to, to go the long way back into the existing market. And the timing of that decision, any light on that? I believe there's, there's officials on the ship now um, looking at uh, the livestock, the, the balance of the livestock. Um, so I think we're getting closer. And I had it confirmed last week that one of the options on the table was taking that shipment around to Victoria to be processed. Is that still on the table? I think that was that was something that was um, discussed preliminary um, right at the, in the early stages, um, you know, to take it, bring it back to, to the port of, of Western Australia or Fremantle or, to, or take it around to Adelaide. So that, that was an option in the early days, but I, I, don't, I don't believe that's been discussed now. Okay. So there are no other options except that taking the remaining livestock to that market in Israel. That's the only option on the table. That's that's what we're hoping for, yep. Okay. Would you expect a decision by the end of today with officials on board now? Oh, look, I, I, I've been expecting some decisions, um, you know, every day. So it's just another day um, that we're waiting. But, yeah, I would hope to think that we'd have something done by, you know, today or, or the end of the week, mm. if possible. What's this process like, Jeff? Because you've been sort of front and centre of all of this. Oh well, look, I'm um, yeah, wearing a lot of hats in this situation. So I, um, yeah, it's been it's been frustrating, it's been tiring. Um, but at the end of the day, um, yeah, we're working towards an, an outcome. Uh, the livestock are in, in good health and good condition, um, and yeah, we just hope for the best. And the future of the cattle that have been offloaded, they're on a property. I'm assuming in quarantine area at the moment. Um, what happens to them in the end? Uh, well, we're, we're looking at re-exporting. So once we can um, you know, get uh, um, safe safe orders and, and markets um, back open again to be able to trade, that's the, their um, destination is back to where they, they should have been going initially. And is the ship ready to take off as soon as it sort of the paperwork is done and the regulator ag- agrees to the plan? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's 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 filled up with fodder and uh, sawdust and um, fuel and and change crew and change vet or some some crew and, and the vet, and uh, I believe it's ready to go again. Yeah. And the health and the welfare of the remaining livestock on board. What do you know about that? Well, we had the um, independents um, go across it late or early last week, uh, and now they're back on it again early this week. So um, both reports are that uh, everything is a okay. Jeff, good to talk to you. Thank you for the update. Thanks, Belinda. Jeff Pearson, he's the Livestock President with WA Farmers with the very latest on what's going to happen with the livestock that remain on board the MV Bahesia, still at the port of Fremantle, still waiting for the regulator to make a final decision. 17 past 12. In northern New South Wales, the Tamworth Livestock Selling Centre is yarding about 12,000 sheep today, and that's three times the amount of a normal sale. Livestock agent Andrew Bloomfield says he hasn't seen a sale this size for about six years, and as usual, it's caused by the dry local conditions. I think through that sort of Urala Walker district, you know, but and then uh, obviously there's sheep from around the Tamworth area as well coming in but it seems to be a big number of stall lambs here today that's really pushed the numbers up people at this time of year everyone sells their stall lambs so and and probably that weather condition is pushing that just a bit harder at the moment yeah so what are you expecting then to see in terms of demand we know the last few weeks since markets started I think when I've checked prices have doubled on what we saw at the end of last year or, or a bit more what do you expect to see in demand though when you do have a big yarding here, but you also have some people who aren't doing as well seasonally either. Yeah, look, it'll be interesting. I think, I think you know, last week Wagga yarded about 80,000 and, and the demand was very good for most categories of the stock. You know, the, obviously the secondary tops took a little bit of a hit down there on those numbers, but I'd imagine the same here today. The good stock will still sell well and the, and the lighter ones will struggle a bit, yeah. So what are the sort of average prices you're seeing at the moment, particularly when you look back on your last sale? last year to what you're seeing in these first few weeks? Yeah, it's considerably increased. It's, uh, it's more than doubled, especially in the lambs. Um, and it's, you know, probably just post-Christmas there was the peak of it, but it's backed off a little bit since then. But it, it seems to have found a level there at the minute and it's poking along pretty well. So your good lambs are still 170 to 200 and a few better than that if they're big lambs. And your store lambs have been, you know, sitting around that sort of 80 and $90 for your good stores and, yeah. Andrew Bloomfield, he's from Pitt Sons in Walker. He was speaking to Lara Webster from the, and he's from the Tamworth Livestock Selling Centre. Uh, of course, just before the news at one today, we are off to Muche locally to get the results of the cattle market. 19 past 12. The small town of Leonora in Western Australia's northern goldfields has been invaded by cattle in recent months. Now, while some residents welcome them, the cattle have damaged gardens and injured at least one person. So as Jared Lucas explains, the local council is going to build a fence to keep them out. Several years of drought have driven cattle from nearby stations into the town site in search of food and water. We've been in drought for probably the last six or seven years at least, so it's very dry around the place and... Um, I know on my lawn, I've, I normally get about half a dozen a night or come in and, and, and munch away at the lawn, which is great. I, mean, I don't have to mow my front lawn. But, yeah, there's a lot of cows in town. And the reason is probably because of the water and the availability of food within the town. But it's something the Shire is now working on with the, the pastoralists concerned to try and move them back out. 
but the issue is, is if they if we move them out straight away, then they're just going to walk all the way back in. So we've really got to look at some sort of more permanent solution, maybe a fence around town. In December, a local council worker was knocked unconscious when one of the cattle charged at him while he was closing the gate at the Leonora Sporting Fields. He was flown 240 kilometres south to Kalgoorlie Health Campus with severe concussion but has made a full recovery. There are also reports of a rogue bull making a nuisance of itself, including targeting a homeowner who took issue with it damaging his car and a separate incident where a blow-up Santa was destroyed outside a local residence just before Christmas. Long-time Leonora resident Norm Williams says the cattle are a regular sight outside his property, which is completely fenced off. However, he says he recently caught one cow on its hind legs eating asparagus plants and bougainvillea plants while peering over his fence. Well, uh, cattle have been around here for quite a while now, and uh, every so often have a roundup and take them away but uh, that hasn't happened for a while and we don't have many problems with cattle here because of the fencing but uh, I've got friends in town who uh, the cows go in there at night and you can imagine what it's like in the morning. The extreme summer temperatures during the day mean the cattle are often seen hiding under trees in the shade, some only a few hundred metres from houses. In January alone there were 12 days where the temperature hit 40 degrees Celsius or higher. Once the sun goes down they're known to congregate near the Leonora Hospital and local sporting fields. Leonora resident Kat Doubly says she got a fright recently when she walked into her kitchen at night and saw a cow peering in through the window. Just a little slit of the curtain was open and there was this giant cow staring at me in the kitchen. I squealed and dropped to the ground because, you know, I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe peeping Tom. And we opened the curtain and there's this cow just standing there looking at us. And I've noticed that it's coming back very, very frequently, standing at the same window. And I reckon my cat and the cow have like little conversations because my cat sits there now waiting for the cow. But oh my God, I, I dropped. I scared the absolute bejesus out of me. It's hoped some late rains in January, including more than 40 millimetres on Australia Day, might help bring some respite for local residents but it's looking likely the wayward cattle will continue their wandering ways. It's something the Shire has been working with the pastoralists for a number of years in, in regards to putting fences in, and, and generally it's a cost-share basis, or the Shire might provide the fencing and the pastoralists will put the fence in. What we've got to do now is probably just try and really rationalise that and, and work out exactly where we need the fencing to, to go to, to keep them out. It's, it's something we'll definitely heavily work on, and then if we need to, then the Shire can then trap the cattle and... and um, and then deal directly with the, with the pastoralists if we need to. You know, if you're looking around town at the moment, you're probably looking at 20 to 30 cows um, around the place, and, and I haven't seen it, but I know there's a bull floating around as well. Um, so, you know, and these are big animals, you know, like five, 600 k's on the hoof, kilograms on the hoof, so it's definitely something, you know, people need to be just wary of them. As we've seen, the you know, potential for, for serious harm to people is real. Ty Matson, he's the CEO of the Shire of Leonora, ending that report by Jared Lucas about those wayward cattle in the Leonora town site. You can read more on the story on the ABC News website. Just search ABC News and Leonora for Jared's story. 24 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varisgetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Jonathan Beale is going to be along very shortly. He'll have an update from the newsroom for you. Just before that update, though, a trial hemp crop has been growing for the last three years near Manjimup 
in the state's southwest. It's managed by AgriFutures and the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development. AgriFutures' Madonna Armit says they're going to hold a field day just to give you the chance to check it out and ask any questions. The objectives of the trials is to determine which regions and under what conditions industrial hemp can be grown throughout Australia. So we've chosen a range of regions with different climatic conditions and a wide variety of seeds to determine which seed grows in what location suitable for a viable crop. One of those locations is here in WA in the southwest. What is the likelihood of hemp being added to farmers' crop rotation in this area? Well, I think if we can give farmers the data and information they require to make informed decisions about what is actually best for their farms, their business, then there's, there's a high likelihood that they probably would choose um, industrial hemp. There's a lot more research being done on um, hemp and, and understanding the impact of using hemp as a rotation crop, just understanding how hemp fits into perhaps their um, farming management systems as a rotation crop, um, how it affects yields and um, the ecosystem and soil health and so forth. It's no secret, Madonna, that hemp is one of the toughest plant fibres. So would farmers that are looking into this, are they going to have to adapt to be able to grow hemp? It's not necessarily the growing of the hemp, it's the harvesting and the processing. So you're right to say that it is a very tough um, plant and it's because of that toughness and the toughness of the fibre that it has a wide variety of uses, particularly in the building industry. But to harvest the um, crop, that is different and it's at times difficult for farmers. But there are some innovations that are taking place throughout Australia. There are, I know of, different harvesters that have been adapted for industrial hemp harvesting and also the processing of the plant, whether the farmer wants to use it for fibre or whether they want to harvest the grain, the seed for food. Both have their own different requirements for processing. That requires, again, another skill set, different different machinery and an understanding of those processes. Surely then that's adding just a whole other level of production onto farmers' already busy schedule, though? It does. However, uh, if, it's a, it's, if it's shown to be a viable crop for the future and remembering it, that it offers a really wide, diverse uses So it can be used for food, as in the grain. It can be used for fibre. It can be used for textiles. The fibre can go into the building industry. Uh, It can be used in biomass. So it's up to the farmer to decide as to the viability of the crop. They need to assess it. The trials that are happening at the moment throughout Australia, including at Manjimup, that will actually give the farmers the data and information So they can make some of those formed decisions as to whether they weigh up the cost of growing a new crop compared to the future viability of the crop. Um, And, of course, the research is evolving. There's research going on in Australia and and other locations as well as uh, internationally. So the farmers will be able to make their own mind up about what is more suitable for their businesses. But what we're wanting to do is to give them the information to begin with. 
Manager of Emerging Industries at AgriFutures, Madonna Armit, speaking to Kate Forrester. And the final crop of the three-year industrial hemp variety trial is going to be open to you, to the public, at the Field Day at Manjimup on the 26th of February, if you're keen. If you want some more information on the Field Day Times, any other information, I think the best place to go is the AgriFutures website and all the details are there. 29 past 12, still to come. We'll head to Muche for the results of the cattle market. We'll also call in to the Gascoigne where there's been some really hot temperatures. Well, pretty much across the state, hasn't there? But it has been hot in this part of the world and we'll check in to see the impact that's had in particular on the mango and the avocado trees. First, though, an update from the newsroom with Jonathan Beale. Thanks, Belinda. Australian writer Yong Hen Jung has been handed a suspended death sentence by a Chinese court. The Foreign Minister Penny Wong says the sentence could be commuted to life imprisonment after two years of good behaviour. The verdict means Dr Yang will spend the rest of his life in prison on espionage charges that have always been denied by his family and the Australian government. A Perth teacher will spend at least two years and six months behind bars for sexually abusing a teenage student. The 32-year-old man was found guilty by a district court jury of 14 charges. The court heard the man first contacted the girl on social media before over the holidays sending her explicit photos and videos of himself. When school resumed, he abused her over about a nine-month period when she was aged 15 and 16. The judge described the offences as a profound breach of trust. And a man aged in his 60s has been taken to hospital following reports of a chemical spill at a high school in Perth's south. Emergency services were called to Melville High today after a suspected chlorine leak in the school pool's pump room. Two classrooms were evacuated while fire crews in breathing apparatus tended to the spill. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock. Jonathan, thank you for that update. 29 to 1. You're with Belinda Barris on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. And as always, you can text through and have your say. Share your thoughts with us this afternoon, 0448 Earlier you heard the small town of Leonora in WA's northern goldfields has been invaded by cattle in recent months. Uh, some of the residents are quite happy about that, but the cattle have damaged some gardens and injured at least one person. So the council is going to build a fence to keep them out. And Andrew on the text says, Cows with guns song seems to come to mind. Be careful. Get that fence up quick. Thank you, Andrew. And also this from Mitchell in Wagen. Hi, Belinda. Just wondering why there has been no coverage of the protests by farmers in France and Germany over climate change taxes being introduced. WA farmers are very interested in what is happening as we see it as a glimpse into the future for us. Have you been told not to report on it? No, we have not been told, uh, you know, to not cover the story. In fact, we were talking about it on Friday. Andrew Whitelaw was here talking about those protests. He's a, a grains industry analyst with episode three. And he was saying that those protests have actually caused uh, that policy, the set-aside policy, to come into question. It might even be delayed this year. What it basically means is under that set-aside policy, 4% of your land is just set aside for sort of environmental reasons. But if they get rid of that for this year, then a lot more hectares of cropping will go in. But it is a good reminder, Mitchell. Thank you for that. I might get in touch with the ABC's European correspondent to see if she can join us here on the Country Country Hour and tell us more about that.
0448-922-604. Text through. Let me know what you're thinking. Off to the Bureau of Meteorology now. Joey Rawson is with you this afternoon. Joey, let's start in northern and eastern parts. How's it looking this afternoon and for the rest of this week? Yeah, good day, Belinda. Um, for the Kimberley and North Interior today, we, we can expect some storms to develop during the afternoon and evening. Um, rainfall out of those storms could be around that 20 to 30 millimetres, uh, but not rolling out maybe some 40 millimetre type falls out of those thunderstorms. Um, and that's mainly over the northern and eastern parts of the Kimberley. And there's also the potential of some storms just inland from the Pilbrook coast, um, inland from like places like Port Hendland and so forth. So um, that's today. Then as we track on for basically the next four days through to Friday, uh, it's a very similar story with those storms over the Kimberley and, and then the chance of some storms just extending uh, along the Pilbara coast. And um, yeah, that's, that's going to continue. So um, the storms producing the most rainfall are going to be over that you know, Kanara type area and northern parts of the Kimberley. But um, the southern parts are looking quite dry. We've got, got this um, high pressure ridge that's pushing dry air. So, um, you know, the Gascoigne and South Interior are going to remain quite settled uh, for a number, number of days, Belinda. Joey, any chance of any of that rain getting into the West Kimberley? It's particularly dry. In that yeah, patch. no, no, there is a good chance of uh, getting some thunderstorms through that area. Um, yeah, the the weather's set up for thunderstorms to develop over the Kimberley and then move um, towards the western parts of the Kimberley. So um, it, it's not a dead certainty because thunderstorms are quite isolated in nature. But um, yeah, there is the potential of getting something throughout the whole Kimberley. But the place that will get the most will be the northern and eastern parts of the Kimberley. Yeah, they've had a bit in recent times, haven't they? Uh, let's move into the southwest land division. A little bit of relief yesterday and today, but it is warming up throughout the week. What have you got? Yeah, well, I can say we've got a lot of relief. Um, those temperatures are, are quite nice after um, yeah 40 degree temperatures for a number of days. Uh, we've got this high pressure ridge that's pushing to the south of the state and driving cooler conditions, especially along the south coast. It's been quite drizzly and and nearly cool in nature. Um, so there's been a couple of light showers along the south coast. Uh, they're quite fine to the south coast, those showers, and they will basically uh, disappear tomorrow. There could be the odd spit in here somewhere along the south coast, but nothing of significance. Um, and then uh, you know, once we get to Wednesday, uh, Thursday and Friday, uh, the bad news is, Belinda, it's going to heat up again. We've got our west coast trough that's uh, driving these hot temperatures and so each day uh, through the southwest, it just gets warmer and warmer. And by the time we get to Friday, we could be seeing temperatures near that 40 degrees, stretching all the way down into the far southwest, the Margaret River region. So, And then once we uh, look beyond Friday, uh, those temperatures are going to stay up through the weekend. So, um, yeah, certainly enjoy these cooler conditions through the southwest before the heat uh, returns later in the week. And then the warnings for this afternoon, Joey. Yeah, so we do have the heat wave warning that uh, stretches over the, the northern parts of the state. And we do have a really strong sea breeze uh, forecast up the whole west coast. So all the way from Bunbury to Exmouth. Uh, yeah, it's certainly getting up to near 30 knots. It was 
uh, around 34 knots at Rottnest Island uh, yesterday. So we're looking at a similar type sea breeze all the way up the west coast. Joe, thank you for going through that. Appreciate it. The time is 23 to 1. Richard Hudson in the studio going through the rainfall figures. Yeah, there's not too many at all today. In the northern and eastern forecast districts, it was only the Kimberley that had some rain. Charnley River, 14. Curtin Airport, 7. Ellenbray, 34. And Winjana Gorge, 16. And then in the entire southwest land division forecast districts, the southwest had a little bit. Some locations had between 1 and 4 mils, but nothing above that. And then in the southern coastal region, Kimberley recorded five and Mount Howick six, but then that's it. Hey, uh, Bill, you mentioned at the start of the show the the Stacey Lamb Train. Now, the legend of the Stacey Lamb Train first started back in the 1940s. So thousands of fat lambs were loaded onto trains and sent to coastal meatworks just south of Perth. And at one stage... 10,000 lambs were loaded onto two trains in just a few days. But the amazing thing is they all came from one family farming operation at Querreting, about 170 kilometres east of Perth. Shirley Stacey knows as much as anyone about the Stacey lamb train. The first train, I believe, was organised by my father-in-law, who was Les Stacey, in conjunction with the local elders' agents of the day. He had been producing fat lambs for a short while before the 1942 and it became obvious that they were no longer able to get the lambs to market uh, the methods they were using, which I'm not quite sure at this stage. So it, what with elders and the railways combined, they suggested that a train could be hired and the lambs could be sent directly to Rob's Jetty from Badgerling, which was a railway siding just east of Quirting. I think it was about 2,000 at that stage, lambs that went down. That was in 1942. Continued right through, even through the war years, I believe, and I became involved with the family in 1957. So what was special about this was there was a lot of lambs coming from one property going all the way from Querreting to Rob's Jetty at Coogee. How many lambs did it escalate to? The largest train that we ever sent, we, I'm saying this was my father-in-law, my husband and his brother who were all partners in LJ Stacey and Co, was 10,036 lambs. Now they all came from the Stacey family. I have been questions over this. People are telling me, no, that's not right. You know, local farmers also helped top it up, but that is not correct. They were all from the one family unit. And by that stage, there was probably about 22,000 acres involved with this particular farming company, which gave plenty of scope for breeding lambs and still growing crops as well. Uh, Trevor, you're the next generation, the son. There's something else that's pretty special. It was the track record of how many actually survived that journey. Well, yeah, I mean, Mum would back me up on this, but I was only a, a child at the time. But the, the pride that the family uh, have was the fact that the, not one animal died in transit in, in those 31 years of, of train transport to uh, Rob Jetty. So that's, 
an unusual, like an amazing feat, really, that you know you could have handling of that standard, which was you know the Corridan community was part of that handling to load them and get them to to, to abattoirs without losing a single animal. That is quite incredible. Do you think it's because back in those days people maybe knew how to handle sheep really well? Was it? Do you reckon that was part of it? Oh, I think there's a lot of luck involved, Richard. <laughs> um, you know that they, they were good sheep handlers, but. We weren't trying to pack them in either. Like yeah. that, the train wagons were loaded and 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 run off uh, up a ramp, and as soon as they stopped running, then the door was shut and the next wagon was loaded. So, yeah. so I think it's a bit like the, the live sheep shipping. They sort of they've spread them out a lot more. Now I'm intrigued. From Rob's jetty, they weren't being exported live in those days, were they? No, a lot of them were being exported chilled, which is not frozen. It's chilled in in muslin individual muslin bags, yeah. the whole lamb. A lot were going to Kuwait, to the United Emirates, whatever they called it. And um, a lot were being used on at local local trade as well, but mainly mainly shipping. Now, of course, Rob's Jetty has many years ago been closed, and all our all our marketable lambs now are taken by truck down to Katanning to the abattoirs there. Some weeks the boys have two loads, which we have a triple-decker, 400 lambs consignment. Trevor, what do you reckon the neighbours thought? If all of these lambs were coming from just one place, would they have liked a piece of the action, or did they try and copy it? Or Oh, look, they, they didn't try and copy it, but they were a, a wonderful uh, source of support. And uh, Mum can vouch that the, the community like, would have been, or well, probably between 50 and 100 people involved in actual loading of the train every year. Like, well, it got to the stage there was two trains. There was one on a Saturday and one that on a Monday. when we had the 10,000, yeah. we had two trains. Yeah. The lambs always went away on the second Monday in October. That was the, the lamb loading. And all that weekend, the, the, the staff, the boys, the family, brought the mobs as closer as possible to the badgering siding because they were all drafted on the morning of the train and walked from the farms close by to the railway station. No dogs allowed yeah. because of bruising and, and whatever else might happen. And this is when the local neighbours all came and helped. They helped with the drafting, they helped with the droving and they helped with the loading. Wow. And myself and other members of the women of the Stacey family we all cooked over the weekend to provide meals and we were providing up to a hundred meals of cold meat and salad on a plate for them at lunchtime <laughs> plus a hot dog yeah. cold lamb Oh, I'd have to say so, but it wasn't. It no, was, it would, would have been anything marketable, I think, Richard. It would have been something. Well, well, exactly. I've worked on a cray boat. You never get any crays no, for, for lunch rarely, on a cray boat, let me tell you. very rarely. <laughs> Just out of interest, though, one thing I'm intrigued with was if they were slaughtered at Coogee and then those carcasses were, what, wrapped in muslin, you were saying? Muslin, yeah. And if they were chilled, yep. how on earth did they make that journey all the way to either Kuwait or England or wherever flown. they were going? They were all flown. Oh, they were flying? I thought they were on, tr- on boats. No, a lot, went, a, lot, a lot went by boat, by yeah. the plane. Yeah. But, but in the early days, in the in the 40s, it would have been by boat, wouldn't it, surely? Oh, I think, look, I, I'm only thinking now, yeah, that they were probably local in the 40s. Oh, yeah. Mainly used at the, on the local market. Yeah, yeah. Right. that yeah. would make sense. The Stacey <laughs> Lamb train. Probably Trevor's generation 
the, the image is fading a bit because yeah. they weren't involved. The local tourist information centre in Quirining have just built a replica stock carriage and placed it outside the tourist information centre and it's, you can walk in it, there's a table in the middle, it looks really brilliant and they've got cut out of lambs, real size, put around the walls with a little story each of the Stacey lamb train and you follow, and you can read the, the brevity of the story that's uh, and, and really it's, it's very clever. Well, it's quite a tale I'm so glad you had the time to chat to us today on the country hour and Maybe we can get it going again, the Stacey Lamb train. We've got to get the railway line first. <laughs> Sorry. Dad, don't bring that. <laughs> good point, Mum. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Shirley Stacey and his son Trevor with Richard Hudson. Their farm's about 20 kilometres southeast of Querding, so about 170 kilometres east of Perth. The Stacey Lamb train was in action from 1942 until 1973, and I wonder if you've got any memories of it. Let me know. Text through 0448 922 604. It's a quarter to one. To the Gascoigne, where some very hot temperatures, even nudging 47 degrees last week, has been really tough on some of the fruit trees. Wes Bassett is from West Tut Plantation in Carnarvon, 900 kilometres north of Perth. He's still assessing the damage to his avocado and mango trees. Before Christmas, we sort of were looking good. Everything was settling down quite nicely, quite good southerly breezes, keeping everything cool. But then we had a quite strong heat spell just before Christmas. And, yeah, we, personally, we actually went away to Perth for a few days and then when we came back things started racing with the mangoes so we were pushed against the wall. Probably a lot of people got caught out that way I think and uh, it was a struggle to catch up with the Kensington Prize, the first variety. And then the other varieties started merging in close to ripening at the same time as them so yeah it's been a tough year that way. Plus in October we did have a couple of hot days as well which that burnt off a lot of fruit and uh, dropped a lot of avocados so yeah it's been one of the one of the tougher years for keeping the fruit on the trees what about the most recent 46 degree day yeah that 47 degree day i guess we probably have most of our mangoes off now a few more a couple more varieties have bags on them so we have a little bit of a chance there but yeah very difficult hot days for uh, the avocado Uh, the avocados will probably drop from that day not many of the trees can handle 47, so a bit of leaf burn and damage to the branches as well and the avocados. So we'll see how they fare in the next couple of days if they drop again. And how do they usually go? They usually have, in Carnarvon, there's usually at least a hot day around this time. Are they usually okay, the fruit? Oh, generally it's not too bad and it will be quite humid and sit around 34, 35 if there's no southerly breezes. But, yeah, perhaps we don't really get such hot weather till March, so... Uh, yeah, it was just a bit of a surprise, and perhaps there will be a bit of damage, but we'll just have to live with that. Compared to last year, how's it been? Yeah, well, yeah, last year was like the perfect year where it stayed cool for the whole time. We had time to pick all of the mangoes, and the avocados didn't get burnt off, so it was a very good year that way. Unfortunately, this year's probably a bit more typical of some of the other hotter years we've had in, in uh, previous times, and perhaps 47's a bit out of character for 
this time of the year, but we can expect some hot weather, so we'll just have to grin and bear it. With the burning off, does that gen are the fruit generally okay after that, or? Well, no, you can't. Short of trying to use the fruit to cut up and process with mangoes, it, it depends on the extent of ha- how many of them there are. You can deal with some, but not a lot. Avocados, you can't do anything at all. Their burn will just stay there and, until May, June, July when you start to pick them. Then you'll see how much damage there is. So damage to the trees is probably worse. You know, the, the branches get exposed to the to the sun. I even saw the mango leaves were burnt, and that's unusual. So it must have been pretty hot. 47 was was doing a lot of damage to the trees. And does that have a long-term impact? Oh, I, I think with the mangoes, they can probably grow past that. Avocados, certainly that affects them. They they start to die back a bit when they get too uh, too heated. So that could have a long-term effect on them. And how are the prices looking, I guess, both for mangoes and avocado? Uh, mango prices probably reasonable. Avocados, last year we noticed quite a difference because there are so many different avocados on the market now from elsewhere in Australia. So our traditional time where we may do well on price from May until July has probably shrunken now and uh, a lot more competitive. So yeah, our prices were down perhaps by half in avocados. Mango's okay. Wes Bassett, he's from West Hutt Plantation in Carnarvon and he was speaking to Rosemary Murphy. You can read more about the impacts of that heatwave on industries right across the gas coin if you just do a search for ABC double heatwave to read that online story. 10 to 1. Fresh food distributor Mercer Mooney is getting into growing fruit. Managing Director Paul Neal says they're starting with white flesh stone fruit and they also see a market opportunity for growing cherries here in WA. The majority of cherries that are consumed in the states are grown in the eastern states and we felt that West Australians would prefer to see their cherries grown in Western Australia and after a fair bit of research decided that the best opportunity for us was to invest directly in the category ourselves. So you're going to be planting trees? Uh, Yes, we've already ordered trees for spring 2025 plantings um, and working through some low-chill programs as well to develop outside the traditional growing windows and in non-traditional growing areas for cherries like Gingin, Margaret River, Bustleton, areas that have higher chill than we would normally need. Tell me about these low-chill varieties. Uh, Where are they grown in the world? The program comes out of California. So the original breeding program, they have developed fairly large plantings into Chile and have started to develop production in the eastern states of Australia. And so you're looking at at an area from Jinjin all the way to Manjimup. Why, Paul? Yes. What's, what's the end goal? Well, what that does, if, if we can develop low chill, it allows us to market fruit in non-traditional windows so for example in Jinjin we would expect to see cherries in October and the only cherries that have been available in October previously have been out of the US so we just see it as another import replacement opportunity. Mersamuni takes the fruit to market but you've recently started growing your own why have you made that move? Look, we've, we've understood in, in certain categories that we're involved with that there are some challenges around succession planning and, and some 
growers with their children not just not wanting to continue on with the family farms in some areas where property prices are on the on the increase it's going to be difficult to encourage new entrants and we just felt the right opportunity was to complement our existing growers and start to develop some of our own production as well. So you're looking at cherries. What are you already doing? We do stone fruit in baling up. When did you plant those? Uh, this is a, an existing program that we got involved with in baling up in December 2022. So this is our second season, but we've already planted an additional 12,000 trees and we will be planting another 20,000 over the next two years. We've heard in rural programs this week that uh, growers, particularly in the Perth Hills area, they're looking at succession, looking at the value of their property. Is this a a way for you to secure the future of Mercer Mooney and uh, West Australian produce? Uh, for those exact reasons, yes. Succession planning, alternate uses. Um, you know, Perth Hills. There's some some tourism strategies in place that are creating alternatives for some of our growers. And property prices make it difficult to come in and start a new project. So, yeah, we've selected bailing up as a, as a place where we think we can grow really good stone fruit and complement what will continue to be a really important part of our program out of the Perth Hills with those growers that are going to continue to grow. Mercer Mooney Managing Director Paul Neal with Lucinda Jose. And Paul doesn't think they'll be picking cherries from their own trees until about 2028. Six minutes to one. We'll get to Boucher for the cattle market results shortly. First, though, I want to introduce you to Charlie Smith and remember his name because I think he could be Western Australia's next big entrepreneur. Now, Charlie might only be seven years old, but he's already selling sunflower stems at his family's farm at Manjimup in the state's southwest. I'm going to grow one tree in sunflowers one day. Because it makes people happy for their birthday. It makes the day shine. Charlie might be young, but he's got a blooming business, growing sunflowers on his family's farm. Um, I water them with my sprinklers and look after them and make them pretty. I do it on my own. After harvest, the flowers are sent straight to their retail shop front which is conveniently located in Charlie's driveway. We cut the sunflowers and then put it in the sunflower shed. It looks like a little shed and it has uh, like a money box and you put money in there and then, then I take it to buy stuff. The business has given Charlie a glimpse of life working his parents' potato farm. It was his dad's idea. All right, mate, so before you jump on the tractor, we might go and start the pump, so I can give you sunflowers a bit of water. I was actually given some sunflower seed last year and uh, I thought it would be interesting if he'd, uh, if he'd plant them himself and, uh, and watch them grow, and he's really blossomed with it. At the moment, he's probably got about 100 square metres there, I suppose, of, uh, of sunflowers this year, but um, he's definitely keen to grow on that. I think it's very important to encourage your kids and from a young age. They, uh, they certainly do take in everything that you, you talk about and say, so they're like a sponge. It makes me happy to see him happy and, and doing what he loves doing. 
The feedback we have had from him selling his sunflowers is it definitely does brighten people's day. Um, we actually have had the management hospital um, come and grab some and it, the uh, receptionist said it really brightens people's day you know, when they're coming in and out in the hospital. I want to make more money and I want to make more sunflowers. What do you think you might spend your money on, what you make from the sunflowers? What do you think you'll spend your pocket money on? On lollies, milkshake and chicken treat. And if this story has you feeling a little brighter, make sure you follow the Make Me Feel Good podcast on ABC Listen. Until next time, thanks for listening. Seven-year-old business entrepreneur Charlie Smith with Kate Forrester. And if you search ABC Sunflower Boy, you'll be able to see Charlie and Kate. And as Kate was just saying, it makes it easier for you to hear those other feel-good stories available on the ABC, the website, and on the Listen app. Two minutes to one. Let's get to the markets now. And about 1,400 head of cattle sold at the Mushay sale yards this morning. Terry Birkin, can you run through the prices? Hi, Belinda. Numbers lifted this week as expected with recent gains in values. Heifers and cows, especially feeder cows, were presented in large volumes as well as younger bulls also presenting in large troughs while steers were in limited supply. All the regular buyers were present and all were actively bidding on their targeted orders. Young steers enjoyed higher values while the remaining categories remained buoyant with recent increases. Lightweight bill of steers up to 280 kilo uh, showed improved rates lifting 20 cents ranging from 242 cents to 300 cents and over 280 kilos made 180 cents to 272 cents a kilo. Light veal steers were equal selling from 178 cents to 230 cents and over 280 kilograms returned 190 cents to 234 cents a kilo. Yearling steers were up 10 cents selling from 190 to 286 cents and the best pastoral steer calves sold to a top of 232 cents a kilo. Yearly heifers were firm with feeder weights starting from 100 cents for planer types up to 226 cents in better condition, while slaughter weights returned 178 to 200 cents a kilo. Grown steers and heifers were buoyant with a limited number of grown steers offered selling from 210 to 220 cents, while grown heifers made 152 to 210 cents a kilo. Feeder cows were making 80 cents to 160 cents, medium cows from 120 to 270 cents, while heavy cows reached a top of 188 cents a kilo. Live export bulls ranged from 140 cents to 240 cents, while slaughter bulls returned 120 cents to 204 cents a kilo. This is Terry Bergen for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Terry. In response to the story about the Stacey Lamb train, this text just in, my dad was a stock agent for Dalgetty in Querading and involved with the Stacey Lamb train. He is 93 and knew Leslie Stacey well, and he still talks about how amazing it was at the time. His name is John Parker. Thank you very much for that and all your texts today. I'll catch up with you again tomorrow. On the ABC, it's time for the news. One o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.